Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I'm the host of the Sendcast and I'm also the Managing Director of B Squared. If you are a new listener, then welcome to the Sendcast. I know I say that every week, but really, if you are new, welcome. Come and join us. The aim of the Sendcast is simple. We want to reach lots of people and help everyone learn more about special educational needs and disability. You get to learn along with me. In this episode, we're discussing how do you wait well when your child is on the diagnostic pathway for ASD or ADHD. My guest this week is Jodie Warren. Jodie is an SEND coach with over 20 years experience as a specialist teacher. She now supports parents of children with additional needs to understand their child's needs and how to support them. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B Squared. We are the assessment people. We help to show the small steps of progress pupils with SEND make. And we can do this for a wide range of abilities and ages. But did you know you can use B-squared assessment software for more than just pupils with SEND? You can now assess all pupils in one system, saving you time and money, and simplifying the whole assessment process. Visit the B-squared website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with me so I can take you through our assessment software. Now, let's get on with the podcast. On this week's show, we're discussing how to wait well while on the diagnostic pathway for ASD or ADHD for your child. My guest is Jodie Warren. Jodie is an SEND coach with over 20 years experience as a specialist teacher. She now supports parents of children with additional needs to understand their child's needs, to advocate calmly, confidently and effectively without burning out. Jodie also delivers training to schools in how to support advocacy as well as training to parents. Welcome to the show, Jodie. Hi, thank you for having me. You are welcome. Waiting times for a diagnosis for ADHD and ASD are incredibly long. For my daughter, we've been waiting around 24 months. The average in our authority is apparently 26 months, so we're almost there. But I know I'm not alone. Yeah, and that is the story here for far too many families, is this incredibly long wait time and it can leave parents, I don't know what your experience has been, but for some parents, it can leave them feeling really helpless in this kind of limbo state, thinking that when they get the diagnosis, then things can start to move. But in the meantime, they're just not sure what to do. So when we unpick that and think about how to wait well and what you maybe can be doing in that interim period, it can be really helpful and it can really change that experience. I'm very lucky, obviously, I get to spend lots of time talking to amazing people. So I've learned very much, don't wait, implement what you can straight away and do all this. But most people don't have those Mm -hmm. connections. Most people are feeling very isolated. Yeah. Because you are literally going, okay, we'll get back to you. And then you're waiting, you are just waiting. Mm -hmm. And there isn't much going on. You might get sent some links on, here's things you can access. And then you're just waiting. Yeah. And I think the being sent links for some parents I've spoken to, that's beyond even what they've had. And that feeling of being literally just given a couple of, oh, here's a local support group. And it might be quite generic and it doesn't necessarily, the information that's available, it's understanding how to translate that to support your child in the meantime. And I think that can be where the gap really is, particularly if you're completely 
new to SEND and it depends what your perspective on neurodivergence is as well. So for some parents, you're not only feeling isolated and a bit helpless, but they're also feeling really scared and they've maybe had this quite negative narrative that they've absorbed. And one of the key things that I talk to clients about when we're thinking about how to wait well is also seeking out those neurodivergent voices. So seeking out the voices of adults who can give that different perspective and kind of separate. You'll obviously be very familiar with the medical model as opposed to a neuroaffirming model. But just looking at that second voice, because I've yet to meet a parent who, when they're waiting, doesn't seek out information. So you haven't got a diagnosis confirmed either way, but parents don't sit. And why would you? You don't sit and just wait and go, well, I'm not going to learn about it until I know either way. But what can happen when you do that Google search is that what comes up can be really scary. And it can be this medical model all about deficits and all about the challenges that your child might experience rather than this strength-based approach, which says actually your child may have a cluster of traits, but ultimately they're still your child. They've still got their interests, their preferences, their strengths. And that other perspective, I think, is invaluable in terms of reassuring parents that the diagnosis isn't going to change your child. And equally, if the diagnosis is ruled out and it's felt that they don't meet these criteria, that doesn't change your child's needs. So as you say, starting with this needs-led approach of, right, what support does my child need? What are they finding difficult? What is it that's driving maybe the behaviour we're seeing or the things that they're struggling with? And what can we put in place to support that? They can be advocating for that from the get-go rather than having to wait this year, two years, sometimes three years to start that process. Definitely. And just going back to those links in the family support groups is, I know someone who was sent some links and told, oh, there's a parenting course you can go on. It's always bad parenting. I'll come back to that in a minute. So they went on this parenting course because their child had autism. And they were going, oh, it's going to be how to support the child with autism. What they found out is every other parent in that room was somebody whose child was an addict. An addict? So it was an addict into drugs and everything. They're literally going... Our child's got autism. Why are we in this room? Mm. And I can't tell you if that was relevant for them or not, but the fact that they went in and they were the only child parent with a child with autism, everyone else was addicts, it's like, well, this isn't for us. And if life was swinging along normally and then someone went, we think your child's got autism, you went, okay, yeah, we'll support them. And in two years get a diagnosis and life will be happy that would be quite nice if that was the case but generally that's not generally the diagnosis that part the oh your child might have asd comes after lots of failings Mm. and you might get called a bad parent oh it's your parenting yeah if they don't go into school oh just you've been too soft on them all those things come out Mm. are said to you that it's your fault your parenting yep and then when you're trying you're obviously you're not going to be sitting there taking all this calmly you then go perhaps it's autism or perhaps it's adhd yeah we'll get a diagnosis problem is that's not the first step you're already at the bottom at that point 
you've been shouted at, been blamed, and then they've mm-hmm. finally gone, oh, perhaps it wasn't your fault. Yeah. And I think that there's a, I think it's closed now, but there's a really interesting piece of research into parental blame going on at the minute in conjunction with West Midlands Adult Social Services and the University of Birmingham. But they were asking for parental feedback because it's such a common phenomena and you hear about it from so many parents. And I think it can be particularly the case where there's masking involved, where rather than seeing the child holistically and going, actually, they're managing to hold it together in school. But overall, if we look at their emotional well-being, things are not okay because they're going home and this is what's happening. And I think that message being drip fed and parents will say I just feel like I've been gaslit I feel like I'm going in I'm saying this is what's going on nobody believes me and as you say it keeps coming back to is it my parenting is it something I need to do differently and that over time can be really corrosive to parental confidence and also in terms of parents then when they come to advocate for their child feeling confident to question maybe the professionals, but maybe other people, friends and family who just don't get it to actually go, no, no, this isn't behaviour. This is a reaction to the sensory environment or to the fact that we changed plans at the last minute. But you need to have that real confidence that you understand your child's needs and you understand how to support them effectively. I think to feel confident maybe making those challenges or questioning and saying, well, you're proposing this. I'm thinking of social programs, for example, saying you're proposing this, but actually what I think you're trying to do is make my child more neurotypical. So actually, I'm not sure that I'm okay with you implementing that intervention. Yep. But you need to have knowledge and you need to have confidence to do that. And if you've had this process of just having that eroded over time, that can make it incredibly difficult for parents to confidently advocate for their child And as you say, do so calmly, because you can just hit this point of total frustration of why is nobody listening to me? And it's really detrimental to parental health, as well as actually getting your child's needs met. I just want to go in into a bit further on this, because I I met someone recently at the autism show, and her son was three, and diagnosed with autism, and already in a special school. So, drink against that much, but that's obviously quite scary for her. And there was lots of people telling her she was a bad parent. There is her community and her expectations of having a son and where he should be and where he actually is. And there's just so many things which just made the parent feel like she's a bad parent. She's rubbish. Also people telling her what her three-year-old son, how his life is going to end out. Mm. Yeah. So he is going to be a failure. He will be this. He will be that. And she was getting this from parents of autistic children. We're right. telling you who obviously have had the system failed. And I think you, you get to a certain point. You're very jaded by the system. You've seen that you've seen it all going. You had a lovely child. And now look where we are. And it's, it can be very, with the current system, to get jaded and all that lot. So she's getting all these negative things. And I just sat there. I went, your child is three. You literally have no idea. And she was telling me all these experiences of all the negative autism things. I'm going, but your child is three. You do not know the forward path. He's struggling with things at the moment. Now, if he gets that support, 
you don't know. You just, as you just, you don't know where your child is going to be, but advocate for them, be with them. And I was talking about using their interests. Mm. Yeah. Cause with anything is if, let me talk about this before about motivation to learn generally, is this relative to me? Is, am I going to need this? Am I going to want to learn this? So if they have an interest, go for it. They mm. will learn skills in that area because they want to learn more. They want to do more in that area. They may want to, they may overcome some of the things they don't like because they want to do something. They recognize that. So you use, there's so many things you can do, but your child, as you said, is your child. You know your child and you will have a gut feeling, even with all the challenges, you will have a gut feeling where they're going to go. And other people give you negative stories. You can't listen. You haven't got, in every kind of family with autism or anything like that, going down that journey, you've got the child's autism, you've got the parents, and they will have an impact, positive, negative, indifferent, which will be different to yours. And you've got where they are, their class teacher, the SENCO, that local authority. And you could have two children with the same autism, exactly the same, doesn't really happen, but for this thing we're going to have the same, in two different areas with the parents reacting slightly differently because of their um, families, because of social groupings, anything like that, and then the school reacting differently, and the outcomes will be completely different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this also links into why it's so important to wait well, because if you think of, if you think with any of us, we have four resources, I would say. We have time, we have money, we have energy, and we have headspace. And different people will have different amounts of those resources and each individual person will have a different amount on a different day. If all of those resources, if all of your time, your energy, your headspace is occupied with advocating for your child or with trying to navigate the SEND system or with trying to maybe have that conversation to say, I know they're okay in school, but they are not okay. They are really struggling that detracts from what's left in terms of those resources to support your child. So when we think about those different outcomes, when we're able to wait well, when schools are able to support parents effectively and really collaborate with them, then that means that there is more capacity to be doing the supporting, to be thinking, okay, actually, this is something that they struggle with. This is when it's less of a challenge. How can we bring that in and really build on that strength so that we do see the progress in this area or we do develop either this skill or this understanding or we change the environment around the child to support that. But if all of your resources are going into almost the toing and froing between the adults within the team around the child, then the team around the child isn't actually supporting the child, which is its entire purpose. And I do think, I mean, the there is a lot that could be said about the current challenges within the SEND system. But yes. I think a lot of those challenges, one of the things they can do is drive this wedge between parents and school so that rather than working effectively together, things come up and that can mean that they're, they're pushed apart. And that just is really, again, corrosive to that team. Uh, but it's the child that loses out in that scenario. It's definitely, and I, I, the Senko is one of the hardest roles because you're, from the parent's point of view, you are an expert, you know everything. And from the training point of view, you're not. Mm. 
it's down to you to find it out. And generally you'll come across a child and generally I would just take it as a Zenko. This is the first time I come across this, but my job to learn. Yes. Oh, I had a child with autism last year. I know exactly what to do. Yeah, that's not going to work. We all know that. So it is very much, the Senko's role is learning. The Senko is in a really difficult place because their hands get tied in so many places. But as I've always said, that is the generally the point of contact and the point of shouting for the parents. Yeah. That is their access to everything behind. I've, I've referred to Senko's as receptionists. You go, into, you go there and that's the person you get. Or when you phone up the call centre, the yes. Senko is that person who answers the phone. There's all these, can I talk to your manager? It's that sort of thing you want to get down and you want to talk to that person, but you can never do it. Yeah. You're just left at this person and that's where the frustration comes out. And I think the waiting well is, I think, really important in life. So if I think of me and the way I do things, I'm really good at putting my worries in a box. Yeah, so when I did my GCSEs on my A-levels, when I walked out of that exam hall, that worry went in that box because I knew there was nothing I could do to change. So I didn't worry about it. It went in a box and I got all with other things and I got with my life. And that box unopens itself for me. Generally, if I'm busy, it doesn't stay. It kind of it opened itself as I was walking to college or getting to school to get my results. Mm-hmm. Then it was like, okay, now I've got to deal with this. I can't hide in this any longer. It's, something's going to be, it's going to be good. It's going to be bad. I don't know. I'm quite good that I can get rid of the worry, put it in that box and put it away and then be productive. And I think when you're on the waiting list, like for my daughter, 26 months. So that's 26 months of me going, okay, I've got to support my daughter. And I said, I'm really lucky. I get to talk to all of you and I get lots of information, which goes straight into my parenting. We've done well. We've worked well. We've worked hard. It's not always been smooth but we have a good relationship. I've learned lots of things which really help. And I have a good relationship with my daughter and she communicates with me. And we have a good relationship with the school. Mm. Not everything is perfect, but we understand they're trying their best. But I think if I'm worried, if I put all my hopes and dreams on getting a diagnosis and that unlocking a treasure chest of money and support, then I'm going to be really pinning all my hopes on that. And almost waiting, because I'm waiting. It's like I'm rubbing off lottery tickets. I'm waiting for that lottery ball announcement on Saturday evening. You're putting all your hopes on that and you're doing nothing beforehand. Whereas I'm fortunate enough to know that getting a diagnosis doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't mean money will come because there's so many other factors. So it's, it's kind of a non-event, but it's, it's reassuring for the child and reassuring for the parent in many ways. But in terms of getting support, it can be a non-event, which... I think people doesn't really enter their mind because they're told you get a diagnosis, you get the money. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest revelations that clients that I've worked with have had is when I said, you can have this conversation with school about what their needs are and what support could be put in place. You can have that now. And they're like, oh, do I not need to wait until I've got the diagnosis? Absolutely not. The need is there. Some parents will choose not to go down the diagnostic pathway. Some parents choose to. I had uh, one very lovely lady who said, I just want to know either way. And I want my daughter to grow up knowing that she's um, an amazing zebra instead of an um, unusual horse. And it was yes. just this, you know, the self-identifying, that confirmation of what you already know. Yes. Um, but as you say, 
in terms of support, in terms of, okay, we've got this, we've got the diagnosis, now what? From a support um, point of view, that doesn't change a great deal in my experience. No. One of my colleagues, he's neurodiverse and his daughter is struggling at school. And he went, look, I'm pretty sure I've got ADHD. And if I've got ADHD and it's genetic, then she probably has ADHD. So why don't we just, why don't you just put in all the strategies you have for ADHD and see if it works? Six months later, complete change in his daughter. It's all worked. No diagnosis needed. Mm. Just do what you would do if she had a diagnosis. So what is a diagnosis? And diagnosis is that about being that zebra. Yeah. I was talking to the parent. I said, have you seen Goodwill Hunting? She's like, yes. I've seen that bit where Robin Willis is curling back down going, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. That's to me what that certificate is about. Mm, yeah. yeah. You've gone through school. Everyone's put it blame on you and all that lot. It's not your fault. It's kind of what it is to me. And I got diagnosed with ASD and ADHD earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I knew for years, but I got that and went, yeah. 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 Yes. But it, 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 and it's like, what's it going to change in your life? Went, Absolutely nothing. I've kind of known for years I didn't fit in, but I thought it was just me being odd. Now I know there's a reason. There's nothing I can do about it. Nice. Let's get on with it. And I think there's something really interesting in there, which is also, it's very much a society thing. But I had a conversation. I do some access to work coaching as well, which I find really interesting. I was having a discussion with um, a lady through that. And we were talking about different ways of working. And she was talking about one person. She goes, oh, I understand how they work. And then she said, and they understand my issues. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Because actually, it's just that's they understand how you work. But the I think it comes from society that actually the way you work is less it's in some way inferior to the way this person works. But actually, we all work differently. So we have people who are really detail-oriented. We have people who get the big ideas, but they have no follow-through. Do you remember the, uh, the Myers-Briggs and all of those kinds of um, tests yeah. of how people worked? And all of them, my very vague understanding or remembering of it, was that it was around you needed different people from all of these different types of yes. way of working in order for things to move forward, for things to develop, for projects to get started and for projects to get finished. But it's really interesting that way that it can be internalised, that actually, oh, this way of thinking, that's just not quite as good. It's like, actually, it's just as good. It's just as valid. It's just as valuable, but it is different. And it's, I think, in some ways, the parent that I mentioned, that's what they're wanting. It's just that starting point of how you experience the world is maybe different to other people, but everybody experiences the world differently. Your perspective, there can be challenges that come with that because the, of the way the world is structured, the way the education system is structured. But that, I think, being really careful about what information we're putting out there, what language we're using, because children will start to internalise that. And we have this opportunity to talk about neurodivergence in a way that is neuroaffirming. It's not to minimise the challenges that children experience. It's not to minimise 
some of the difficulties that can occur. But it's also to acknowledge that, as you say, it's not their fault and the validity of their experience. I think really bringing that up is really important. And it's something that does seem to be happening more over the last few years, which I feel really positive about. I know, I think, as a lot of diagnosis happens in the secondary school world. And I think primaries is much more collaborative. You seem to learn in different ways. You have group discussions. You do this, you do that. You're often going to do a project on the Romans and you spend time on that. And you can, my daughter, I have no idea why this happened or how this happened, but she was designing clothing for cats based on the Romans. It was just, but she loved it. Yeah. And it was very Roman. You looked at there was cats in togas and all that sort of stuff. It was just, but she went off and that's why she loved cats. So she got that in her interest and she went off and did this project. But secondary schools is much more conformity. And I think as well as all the executive function skills that require the independence, all the social stuff, the way learning changes, I think also has a big impact on neurodiverse who are more i'm going to say big thinkers yeah they might either either be very specific in the detail or the big thinkers and there's not much space for big thinking in secondary these days so if you're going oh we could do all this and it's not fitting in then you go well i don't fit in or i'm wrong or i'm this Mm. it's not it's not it's not it's just for five years it doesn't work Mm. at b squared i am the big ideas person i have an idea i'll write it out I will admit I lose interest at about 80 to 90%. Yeah. I'm getting towards the end and it's too much detail. Yeah. And I'm getting bored of it. But I've got someone else here who doesn't get the big idea bit, but she gets halfway through and she's, oh, now I'm getting interested. And she will pick up my last 20% and she will finish that off. Yeah. There'll be nothing missed. She is very much, I need to do this, I need to check this, I need to check everything, there's no holes in this. I need to know there's no holes in this. And it works perfectly. Yeah. It's brilliant. And it is that different types of learning. You you need different people to make a team. Yeah, you really do. And there are challenges, I think, within aspects of the education system where there's an expectation that children are going to have all the skills. And they're going to be able to do all of the things rather than that teamwork. And I mean, even within that, I wonder if where things do seem to become more challenging in secondary, I think even the setup of secondary introduces a whole host of other skills that children maybe find a little bit harder. If we think about executive functioning around organising yourself, navigating your way between different rooms. From a sensory perspective, it's completely different to your one classroom that maybe has been set up, has been really carefully considered. And that's in no way a a criticism of secondary schools. It's just the nature of that environment. So maybe things that have always pre-existed, that need becomes more apparent in that bigger setting where there are those extra demands. But as you say, that way of working it can be a challenge for five years, but actually, yes, there are some jobs where you are required to navigate from A to B to, you know, to do all of these different things that maybe you do need to do in secondary. But actually, there are also jobs that you would apply for if you were better suited to 
works for me to control my environment, to not have to travel too far, to have a set routine, whatever it might be, to work in a smaller office, you would take that into consideration when you were looking at what job you might go into. So it is a set period of time when, as you say, it can feel somehow as if you're getting it wrong and you're not. It's the environment that just isn't suited to how you experience the world. Yes, and there is there is so many. My daughter, who's year twelve, has um, with my other daughter has just done uh, some work experience outside at a country park, and she's going. Yeah, I'm liking this. She was drained, physically drained, but she likes the idea of doing that rather than stuck in an office. Yeah, she's never got that experience at school. It was school was stuck in an office with people you haven't. Life is in. But I just want to go back to that team because I got mentioned that the same way I work, I'm the big thinker. I've got someone who does the detail. We've got to remember parents are the same as well. Yeah. And it's important. You talked about those four things, time, money, energy, and headspace. Was that right? Yeah, that's I like right. That. I like those four. You might find that the vocal person, the one taking the lead in the meeting, yeah, you might feel the other one's either not there or is just there sitting quietly, isn't doing anything actually they might be doing lots of other things so that parent can focus on this issue. Yeah. And you can get so many things wrong with making, oh, oh, it's just a mum. Dad just doesn't really care. So like, no, no, he's doing lots of things so she can just f- fight, yeah, quotes, but properly something that is fighting for their child. And it is, so don't just take it there's one parent. You might be seeing one parent, but they might be decided that actually you're better in the meetings than me. So you talk, I get angry, and then it goes wrong, so I'll keep quiet. There are so many reasons why one parent might be the leading in the meeting. Yeah. Another one might just be sitting there observing. I like doing that one. I like just sitting in meetings and watching the others and how people react. Um, so, yeah, understand that as parents you are a team. You have different strengths. You have bits where you need that support. Um so remember that as well. It's, it's, it's making sure through this whole journey that you stay a team. Mm. It's really important yeah. that you stay as a team. You support each other. You get when you struggle and you also get when the other person struggles because we all struggle for different reasons at different times. And there's loads of things that. So you've got to remember you are a team and above all else, your relationship with your child is more important than anything else. Yeah. And I think there's in there remembering that you're a team and also understanding. You mentioned earlier your friend who's ADHD and is is going through that process for their child. For a lot of parents, so I've got a couple of parents I'm working with where they're ADHD as well. And the thing that's difficult for them is identifying steps. They're like just, I need a first step. And if I haven't got that first step, I just don't know where to start or what to do. And I think when you know, whatever your neurotype, when you know how your brain works, then you are in a better position when you think about moving through this assessment process to know, right, what information do I need? What do I need to know in order to then divert my attention and just focus on supporting my child? Um, and you know, being there and actually enjoying my child as well and enjoying this two years that I might be waiting. And there can be a lot of if you if you look out there on say forums and stuff, people will say, My child has just gone onto the assessment pathway, what can I expect? And 
I always recommend for parents, you need to go straight to the provider because there can be so many differences in how it's commissioned, in the process, in you know the sequence of activities, in where the parents are in, are out, how it's structured. Is it an hour on the phone? Is it three hours in person? When you have that information, knowing what you know about yourself, about your child, about your partner, you're then in a position to go, okay, so this is the bit that's going to be really good for us to do together. This is the part that I'm maybe going to struggle with. So maybe I need to ask, is there a quiet area that I can wait in whilst we're going through this process? Is there an area where, you know, if it is a three-hour assessment, is there an outside area that we can step out into and we can just have breaks from it? And you collate that information, but there's a lot of information out there that is very well-intentioned, but inaccurate. And I think the only way to really know what your child's assessment is going to look like is to actually contact the um, organisation themselves. And I think as well, pulling together the questions, because there will be overall questions like, how long is the wait time going to be? What does the assessment look like? Who will we be meeting with? But there can also be some more of the specifics, which might be exactly what you know that you might find tricky or you know your child might find tricky. And just pulling all those questions together. And as you say, it could be that one partner is firing out these questions left, right and centre. And the other partner is the one that helps to pull them together and go, okay, so what we need to know are these things. And then does that communication potentially? But yeah, that teamwork is really important. You get the information about what to expect. And then, as you mentioned earlier, that idea of just putting it to one side. So if you know you can't expect a response to this particular stage for six weeks, you make a note in the diary, you come back to it six weeks later, rather than each day wondering, is it going to be now? When should I have heard from them? Should I be chasing them? And it's knowing when to push and when to pause. It can be really important as well. And I think it's important is if I ask you about your child with autism and you're in uh, slightly unregulated because we're in the assessment centre, this is a really big deal for your child, you're not going to be thinking clearly. And often what you'll think about is the negative and the disruptive. And it's really important when you think about how does my child autism present or ADHD present is to build that picture up over time. I think so when you can literally go, you sit there and sometimes you're having a really good day and your child does something, you're going, Oh, that's okay. Oh no. And it's like putting that down and putting a picture because sometimes you just focus on this. You say, Oh, it's just bad behavior. But it's those, the opposite bits where, where he does this really well, or he really finds this fascinating. It's those almost calmer, quieter bits that you may not mention and may forget can be really important in putting it all together. Mm. Often, if if you're wanting support, you're going to talk about the bits where it's a challenge, where you're struggling, where he's struggling, where it's causing the issues. You're going to be focusing on all of that because that's why you need the support. But actually, there is a full picture and you're giving part of it. And especially with girls where there isn't always the disruptive part, and not all boys are the disruptive, it's, again, you've got to paint that full picture. Yeah. And as well, when children are accepted onto the diagnostic pathway and then as you say there's a 24 26 month wait their presentation by the point they actually 
see the professional could be really different. And you've had that opportunity, you mentioned about your friend, of going, well, actually, we implemented all of these strategies. These ones were really helpful. These ones made things worse, but these ones didn't seem to have an impact. So you've already started to narrow down what might be going on. So when we see those behaviours that maybe prove challenging, you're already going, actually, that is less evident when we put these strategies in place. So we think this is what's driving that behaviour. And it's unpicking that, but making sure that at the point you see the professional, it's not your role. I think sometimes there can be a feeling that you need to interpret the behaviour. And it's not. It's that factual observation of actually, when we put this in place, they seem to struggle less. When we took this away or when this wasn't in place because we were in a different environment, they seem to struggle more. And you're just presenting that information and then interpreting it is where the professionals can help you. And they're bringing that other aspect to your team. And they obviously have different knowledge to what you as a parent have. But when you pull it all together, that's when things can really work well. It is that. It's that full picture. And all those things, yeah, all those things which change this, work, they struggle with this, but as they get older, we did this. That, it, it's all of that picture of when things change. And yet that's re- it is really important because they are going to see that child and I know people have said, we went to the session and they were perfect. They're going, oh, why didn't he show all this stuff? And you're going, well, as you know the environment. And that's, that's that additional information. As, yeah. Well, it's a quiet room and there's only one other person. He's quite happy. Cool. So today we're going to do a one-on-one assessment. Well, he'll be happy then. But it's in these, so all of that is the information you need to provide. Yeah. Not like, oh, he'll only do it when he's, it's not like he's a, he's not a trick pony. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going, if you jump, do it, play dead. It's none of that. It is, most things are, tri- I'm going to say the word triggered. It's not the best thing, but it is caused by something. Yeah. Yeah. Too many people, too much noise, certain situations are where they struggle. Yeah. Um, There's a beautiful cartoon. I can't remember it is, but it was, it's not, but it's a lovely little cartoon describing autism is it's not a scale. It's like a colour wheel. And I loved it. And if you, I think it was cart, if you Google cartoon autism, I think you'll find it. it's beautiful little like flip thing. And it was great. And it got his head going, my communication is great. Unless you put me in a noisy environment and then I struggle. So if you look at me this way, I'm not very autistic. If you look at me this way, I'm very autistic. Yeah. I'm neither. But it's having that cl- cl- information tells me, right avoid those or put support in for those mm-hmm. over here fine don't worry yeah all of that coming together allows you to show that wheel yeah and i think it's that awareness because there can be with with lots of different children for lots of different reasons but there can be a perception that they are choosing not to And it can be because they did it yesterday. And that understanding of, do you know, sometimes I can do a really good job. I can be really calm if one of the kids doesn't want to get dressed. I can be totally calm about it. But actually, if I'm stressed out and I'm in a hurry and I'm a bit tired and all these other factors come to me, I may not be as calm if one of the kids won't get dressed on a morning. And it's that recognition that that is just human behaviour. We do not all show up in the same way each day. So yes, yesterday, 
a child may have been able to tolerate the noise that was in their class, or it may have been noisier and they were fine. But look at what's going on today. And actually, they're not coping. So how can we support them with where they're at at the moment? And I think the, you know, the bucket analogy of if you've got so much has gone into the bucket, there actually will be certain days where they've had a really good morning, everything's gone really smoothly, your bucket is half full. So yes, you can tolerate maybe a bit of a noisy lunchtime or a bit of change to routine. But then on a different day when maybe other things are going on, it's the end of term, they're a bit under the weather, that bucket's already full. So yes, it's going to overflow and you're going to see a child struggling in a situation that you didn't anticipate. But it's I think there's a real irony when we talk about flexibility, because sometimes it can be the adults around the child who find it difficult to be flexible, to go, Do you know, actually, today they're not coping. So what can we adapt? What can we quickly change to put that support in place so that we can start to get back down that kind of regulation curve? Um, and that can be at home, it can be at school, it could be all sorts of different contexts, but taking that responsibility, pardon me, on as adults to go, you know, actually, we're more able, even just due to our maturity, to be flexible, to come up with different ideas to problem solve. So let's put those skills in place to support a child effectively. And this reminded me of my nephew. So I think he was in school and it was one of the things that went off to a church or it was a carol service or it was a local authority. Where all the school, it was just lots of singing, lots of noise. And he basically couldn't cope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they go, oh, he just doesn't like loud noises. Four days later, he's at Manchester Airport watching the big double-decker plane go over his head. He's not got an issue with noise, in theory. It might be the frequency. It might be, why are we doing this? It might be the noise from all around. Rather than the plane is making the noise and when it's gone, the noise will stop. It's, I'm in here all day and there's lots of noise and it it's not almost like rhythmic or mechanical, it is chaos noise. Yeah. So saying noise isn't really, it's, there's, bit, there's something within that, there's something about that setting that it might be the fact I can do the noise for like a minute as long as it, okay, it's quiet again. So when the plane's gone, it's quiet. Yeah. The next one takes off. But it's so many things, you can't just say noise. Yeah. It's that predictability, it, isn't it? Yeah. As well. And if, if he really likes planes and he's really regulated, that bucket is really empty and he hates the noise, but he's I acknowledge that for me to see this plane, I have to deal with this noise, but I'm happy. So every time the noise plane takes off, my bucket fills up and it's gone, it goes down again. Whereas when I'm in school, that bucket is full because we had to get a bus. We had to get on the coach here, which I don't like. I'm now sitting here. I'm not my, it's just so many little bits mm-hmm. which can cause that bucket to be full before you even got in that hall or that wherever church or wherever. And it is, it's always unpicking. Yeah. And the more you can unpick as a parent, the more you can say, oh, he doesn't like school to actually it's when this happens at school, he really doesn't want to go in. Now you're really about to go ask why it's not school. That's a very big idea of a school. Yeah. It's on a particular day. When we talk to school, it's when this happened. Mm. It was the day before, the day after, or whatever it was. It's that, unpicking all of that and putting that time, which is time and effort, having a little diary. When he, when he always has fighting to get him into school in the morning, 
Yeah, when he comes home or she comes home and has to let it all out, just it's lots of making notes. Yeah. And putting it all. And you can sometimes put it together. Not always. But if you can see there is a pattern, there must be a cause. I haven't worked out what it is. Again, that's what you tell people. Yeah. It's not every day. It's just sometimes. And I think there's different approaches. The one I always use is um, post-its, which doesn't sound very high tech, but you can find, you can have your notebook that you're going to make notes in, but it's never where you need it at the point that you need it. Whereas having little stacks of post-its and jotting down what happened and trying to be objective, but actually in the moment, what can happen as well we as parents become dysregulated because actually it's really difficult and we feel quite stressed out and all of these other feelings come in making a note though of what happened on that day and then coming back to it and maybe taking some of the emotion out so we just have that factual observation of what was actually observed that over time you can then bring them together all those post-its and you can start looking for themes and you're like actually yeah it's happening more at the beginning of the week it's this transition from two days at home back into school or it's happening at the end of the week is it something to do with being more tired is it to do with it being the ppa on a friday and you can start to spot these patterns but even if you can't you have the information which can enable somebody else to more objectively go i wonder if this is i wonder if this is a thing i might be right i might be wrong but is it worth exploring and i think that when we think about advocacy as well is one of the th- one of the reasons it's a whole other topic but this the kind of why fighting doesn't work when we think about advocacy because when you've got that positive collaborative approach to advocacy you can work with people and it create do you know amy edmondson's work on psychological safety so she there was some research done which looked at different medical teams and there was a particular medical teams where they were reporting a higher level of mistakes as compared to the other ones but the ones that were reporting a higher level of mistakes actually had better patient outcomes the ones where there were seemingly fewer mistakes and the, what they unpicked it to was that in these environments if you felt able to go or oh, we tried that that didn't work or i made a mistake on that practice improved and patient outcomes were better. Whereas over here, actually people were just, if they made a mistake, they were keeping stum. So nobody was developing, things weren't moving forwards. I think if you bring that principle across to advocacy, if you can have a discussion with, say, the teacher and say, this morning was really difficult. This morning we were really struggling to get into school. If you feel that by doing that, you're going to be blamed And it's going to be, okay. so what was wrong with your parenting this morning? You know, what did you not put in place? You're not going to open up that discussion. Whereas equally, if as a parent, you're coming into that quite upset and quite angry, the teacher is going to be playing it safe and not going, oh, I wonder if it's because we actually, I know there was an unexpected fire alarm at the end of yesterday. So we didn't get to do the end of day sequence that we normally do. And I meant to tell you, but I forgot because so-and-so I needed to speak to their parent. It's detrimental to that communication, which could help you to go, oh, actually, so maybe that's the reason this is what we can do differently and kind of owning each of the parts in that. Um, Sorry, slight tangent, but I just find it really interesting. (laughs) That is, I, I... 
many years ago, I worked at IKEA and I had a boss who basically followed that principle. Is he? I, I've learned. I learned a lot from him over the time I worked with him, and it was very much. He was very good. He wouldn't pick on certain people. He literally almost like had a rotational calendar for the rubbish jobs, but he always did the rubbish job with you. I really liked him, and he would say it was my fault. And that was. And he just he goes my fault. I won't do that again. I mean, you move on. Mistakes. We all make mistakes. You learn from mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. As your re- the research proved, and it's just like, oh, okay, that's why it works. There's research behind it. But I just find if you're more open and honest, you all get on better. You all accept you make mistakes, but you don't hold it against each other. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it works really well. Lo- tangent, but I love the tangent. <laughs> <laughs> so I think if we, to me, if we're going to summarize this, we're basically going a diagnosis doesn't really mean anything other than to you and your child. What you think should happen with once you get a diagnosis, all the support you can do right now anyway. And if you are waiting for a diagnosis, prepare for it, learn, record, be ready for it, understand. Mm. Anything else to add in? I think getting the knowledge is really important. So we touched on there this idea, contacting the provider, knowing what that's going to look like. That can help to prepare you. And it can also help to prepare your child, which I think is really important for them to not be worried about it. And also to make sure that your child knows what this assessment is about, to know that this isn't about assessing something being in inverted commas wrong with them. It's about understanding how their brain works so that the most effective support can be put in place. And their input is really important in that. I would say in that time period, making a conscious effort to when you're gathering information, seek out the perspectives, the opinions, the experiences of the neurodivergent community. Get those perspectives from people who maybe have been there and will be able to say, these are the things that actually worked for me. These are the things that that didn't. And really balancing that against this medical model, which by the nature of diagnosis, you are moving through a medical model. So you need to be quite deliberate in offsetting that. And I think the third thing is really taking, having a look at what's coming up, what you're maybe worried about, what you're stressed about and thinking, right, what do I have control over? Okay, I can find the information about what this is going to look like. I can put dates in the diary to revisit and then I can put that to one side. What can I influence? I can start having those discussions with school, with nursery, wherever it might be, about these are the needs, how could we support? That might be something that you do invest some energy in. But then also, what is outside of my control? And that might be the length of the wait time. And it might also be some discussions I've had with parents. It can be, I feel so bad that I didn't start this sooner. We're coming up to a transition time. I should have looked into this years ago. It's letting go of that because that's gone. And also letting go of the this idea of, well, what will this mean for my child when they get to secondary? What will this mean for my child's long-term life experience? You don't have control over that. So recognising, if we think about those resources again, if you're investing headspace, attention, energy in worrying about things over which you have no control, you are less able to support, you're less able to be present and to enjoy your child in the moment. So I think that's another really key element to being able to wait well. 
I think what you just touched on there is that idea of as you learn more, you will find you made loads of mistakes, big, small. But you don't know what you don't know. The important bit is now you know, don't make the same mistakes. But also bear in mind, you didn't know you made those mistakes. So don't be so harsh on others. Maybe help them educate, but just take just remind yourself is they don't understand. They might be judging my child. They might be judging my parenting, but they don't understand. And is me fighting them, working out, depending on who they are and their relationship to you and things like that. Do I educate them? Do I not? That's a whole other thing. Because sometimes if you are constantly fighting the rest of the family, that's not great. So there should be a big education piece. But if it's someone you don't see that often or it's a stranger, let it wash over you. Yeah. Yeah. They don't know your child. And that's the thing is underneath it all is your child and you know, your child, you know, your child when everything is great and you know, your child when everything is, you kind of, you know, your child and you will know what's impacting them and you're trying to reduce that you know your child and that's the thing is your child is still in there so love them have fun with them cherish them have your own relationship that works for you yeah others might think it odd but does it really matter if you're happy and your child's happy yeah that's 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 what i've taken from all my journeys with my children is i meet my children where they are yeah i think that's a beautiful way of putting it and it's absolutely key because anything else just leads to frustration on both sides. Yes. So I think we've, I think we'll wrap it up. Jodie's given me some information, so links to her website, starting your send journey, and some other bits, and the ADHD diagnostic process. So I've got all of that in there in the show notes, and I said Jodie's contact details. And as usual, you'll find the show notes wherever you listen to the podcast or on our website. So thank you for listening. And thank you, Jodie, for coming along and sharing the information, having a great discussion with, as always, some tangents as we always go on. And as always, thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, click on that subscribe button. You can follow us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We are simply The Sendcast. And as always, let's talk about B-squared. So if you're struggling to show progress, if your assessment process is overcomplicated, takes too long, or you just want to know what is available from B-squared, have a look at the B-squared website or book a free online meeting so we can take you through our products. We have a range of assessment products to help all schools show small steps of progress for pupils with SEND. If you're a school in England, still not sure about the engagement model or not sure what to do about pupils working out of year group, if you're in Wales and you've got the curriculum for Wales or anything like that, please get in contact. You can find out about our online training, our D, you can read our blog, you can watch our webinars. It is all on the B Squared website. And you'll find a link to the website and to book a meeting in the show notes. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. Thank you. Thanks for having you. Me. You're welcome. Bye.